Have you ever wondered what it takes to build a successful business in the Australian property industry? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Business and Property Development, a monthly podcast in which industry leaders share their insights and experience with host Harry Karadimus. Hello and welcome to Business and Property Development. I hope you're well and have settled into 2021 nicely. In this month's episode, I speak with our first property developer, Hamid Samavi, who founded Oracy in 2011. Hamid initially began his career in architecture, but soon found his true passion, being his own development client. Now, Oracy designs, builds and delivers high-end boutique residential developments in the eastern suburbs and lower north shore of Sydney. What I love about this episode, and I'm finding this is becoming a recurring theme with these interviews, is making new discoveries about the people I speak with. See, I initially approached Hamid to collaborate on an episode because I've always thought very highly of the projects that RSC develops. As such, I wanted to know more about the way Hamid started and built his business to where it is today. Given RSC handles all aspects of a development under its own umbrella, I thought a vertically integrated development company would be an interesting one to profile. What I also discovered through getting to know more about Hamid was that he has an unwavering commitment to sustainability and ensuring his projects leave a positive legacy of urban additions on the Sydney landscape. Making these discoveries and being able to share them with you is without doubt one of the most rewarding aspects of this podcast. Given the time we had, we only scratched the surface of Oris's approach to sustainability. Though one thing is for certain is that visionary development companies are out there and they are pushing the limits of sustainable design and their integration into construction. And I'm not just talking about passive systems. That's just expected in a harsh climate and is a tick box minimum. I'm talking about the integration of advanced technologies that have the potential to remove a development from city utilities. But that's enough from me. Why not hear from the man himself? Without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Hamid Samavi. Hamid, welcome to the podcast and thank you for being with me to share your insights and experiences. Thank you for having me. I'd like to begin by setting the scene Put some context around yourself, your initial career path, and how you've transitioned into property development. So we can take it back from as far back as you can remember. Well, I started with architecture. My passion was creating things, putting things together, and seeing amazing things happening. So working in architecture, I had to work with clients, and sometimes I got disappointed with clients not understanding the value of design that we put in. So I realized the best thing is if I'm my own client, basically. So I invest, I design, and I build it myself. So you can see your ideas coming to reality. How did you initially begin that? So you studied architecture? Yes. In Australia or? I studied overseas in Cyprus, Italy, and then I came to Australia. I came here in 2010. I actually had a scholarship in Italy, Politecnico de, de Milano. I started there and I realized, well, it's not what I wanted. They just look at classical architecture and it was, it was a bit different, that course that I had. So I came to Australia and I started studying at University of New South Wales. 
And then quickly I got into tutoring and starting professional relationship with teachers and, and architects and the industry. So it was a good experience. And were you practicing architecture here as well before transitioning into property development? Oh, yeah. I started teaching and then I started in a small company in Paddington working on heritage houses. Michael Robiliart basically was my mentor there. The first property that I developed was a heritage house here as well in Bulara. That was the first property that I bought. So with the transition into property development, was there a defining moment in which you thought, I don't want to work under somebody else. I'd like to be my own boss. You know, what was that defining moment? Well, I guess you get frustrated with your boss and clients telling you what to do and not be able to follow your dreams in architecture. So I guess the defining point is when you put a bit of investment together and you can buy a property. So I went and bought a rundown property that you would not live there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was four meters wide and it was the smallest uh, terrace house I, I could find, but it was a good street. It was in Bulara, a very good area. So yeah, I, when I bought the property, I, I had another bidder uh, against me and they thought it's a two-bedroom property, but obviously I have designed it before going to the auction. After the auction, I showed them, well, it can be a four-bedroom house, which is valuable in, in Bulara. So I remember the second bidder offered me $200,000 straight away to buy it off me again, you know, and I said, yeah. no. <laughs> Forget it, this is mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Were you working as a full-time position somewhere else? And using this property as your launching pad into the development industry, or did you cut your ties and then just said, I'm just going to simply focus on developing this property? No, it was a bit of scary because you, you get used to the salary coming to your account every month. That's right. yeah. <laughs> so what I did was I had a chat with my boss and I told him, listen, I want to get into property development. Can you help me? He said, Hamid, don't get into apartments. They're just complicated. You're not going to make money there. And I'm regretting it now because uh, I had a very good opportunity back then in getting into a bigger developments. But I started with a heritage house. So I asked my boss. He helped me. He, he did a bit of research. It's more complicated when you deal with heritage. Obviously, there, there are more layers involved. I bought that property. And while I was working full time, I applied for the DA and all those things. And with that property, what ended up coming of it? You get excited. I made half a million on that after selling it. So you realize that half a million is like five, 10 years of your salary. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, yeah. so you start getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And yeah. What did you do after that heritage property? So I bought a house in Bellevue Hill. I did a duplex there, a dual occupancy. And after that, I got into apartments. Was RSE established at that point in time? I registered Oris in 2011, but obviously it was an architectural company when I started with Oris and I was designing for clients on the side. So the income was not good enough, basically. So I, I remember it was like working for free. And then I, when I started my own development, that boosted the business. So... You started with heritage properties, you got into houses and then into apartments. Yes. What was your intro into your apartment development sort of phase? What were you developing at that point in time? I love the idea of working with mass market. 
developing something that everyone can enjoy. When you put your effort into developing a house, at the end, one person can enjoy it, right? But if you do apartments and you do them right, you see 10 families, 20 families, 50 families, they, they enjoy what you do. And to be honest, it's the same hassle when you do a house or you do a bigger project. So I just started doing bigger and I had a few investors. Obviously I had the idea, I knew how to do it. I had the expertise and I started getting a few investors helping me and we started doing bigger. Did you have any mentors or guidance in that early phase? Did people help you with the decisions that you needed to make at that point in time to enable you to do it successfully? Well, I remember my boss was telling me to not get into apartment development, right? But I had the experience overseas and it was a bit harder in Australia. The DA process dealing with council is just <laughs> yeah, very different, but I found a way. So no, I didn't have anyone basically helping me. And I, I realized in Australia, if you want to be a developer, there are a lot of parties involved. So you have to get a planner, a lawyer, you have to get a team of architects basically to do a development. And that makes the whole thing very expensive. Technically, I could not afford. So I had to do everything myself. And that helped me a lot because I understood every single part of development. This is actually a topic that I think would slot in quite nicely with the way that Oracy developed into the future with your, I guess, the vertically integrated portion sure. of it. But you mentioned experience in developing overseas. Can you put some context around where you were developing overseas? Well, I lived in different countries. I was developing, my dad is a developer as well. So I was developing in Iran, in, in, in Cyprus. And then I went to Italy to find a way to basically get into the property market over there. It was impossible. And obviously I had a bit of language barrier as well. So I came to Australia and I realized it's very friendly. You can understand everything. And I started making friends and connections and yeah. What kinds of properties were you looking at? Usually apartments. Just apartments. Yeah. 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 So obviously Australia is not a dense place. Everywhere else you go, it's all about density. So no one is interested in houses, just apartments, apartments, houses. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of your early days, would like to understand more what the challenges were, what you faced in the early sort of stages. So you mentioned you had to do everything yourself. Yes. So you were doing the architecture, you were managing the development point of view. What else were you doing? The most important part is understanding the risks before getting into the property development or getting into one property. Every property has got its own challenges. One of them, they had a precious tree in the, in the middle of the building, could be heritage issues, it could be view issues. So you have to understand that before getting into the property. And I see many developers, they get into a development, they make no money and they move on. So you lose interest. I think that's very important to understand the risks before getting into the property. And then obviously when you buy the property, it's important how you design it, how you add value to the design and throughout the construction, how you utilize your expertise to deliver a better building. So just on that point of delivering better buildings, so you, from the very beginning, had an integrated model where yes. you didn't outsource a whole lot. Now, whether that was a financial thing or whether that was a way of retaining quality and fostering quality in your projects, because it sounds like from the very beginning, you were often quite disappointed with the results that were coming up. 
you know, with the clients that you were working with or, or the decisions that were being made in the company. So can you talk a little bit more about how Oracy developed into a company that handles all those different portions sure. of design construction? Well, in Australia, if you are a developer, you have money. Then you have to go and hire people. You get an architect, you find a real estate agent to find the property for you. Then you get an architect to design it for you. Then you have to get a project manager to project manage the whole process and then a builder to build the project. Then after that, you have to get another person to sell the property for you. And throughout the process, the only thing that you have to think of is how you can finish the project, right? So it's all about money, money, money. And obviously you have to cover the overhead of all these people. It makes it so expensive, right? You can't think of anything else. Like my passion is sustainability, right? When you explain this to a developer, it doesn't make sense because they, they can't get the money back. So you, you tell them, okay, for sustainability, you have to spend another 100 or $200,000 per unit to make a unit sustainable. And they're like, well, do I get more money back? No, you, you can't because when you want to sell it, you get basically the same money. No one pays more for a sustainable apartment. And they're like, thank you very much. We are not interested. So the only way to bring this cost down is basically doing everything in-house. So we brought everything under one umbrella. I find the properties myself. I do the design myself. I project manage the whole project and I build it myself. And also we have a sales team in-house as well. And everyone works towards the same goal, which is the sustainability. So if you have architecture, we have sustainable architecture. If you have construction, it's sustainable construction. If you have sales, they understand what we did into the design and to the construction so they can explain to the buyer and they can educate the market that you should be expecting this from developers. And this whole idea of vertical model happened in Oracy. On the sustainable side of things, how does that come into it in terms of the architecture, construction, what in particular do you do in each of these sections to facilitate the sustainable side of things? Sure. Sustainability is the future. So in architecture, obviously, we did a partnership with the University of New South Wales. We have a few PhD students working with us doing research and design. And obviously, we have my team working with them to utilize the sustainable ideas into the design. Architecture is very complicated in Australia because you have to comply with lots of regulations and this and that. And you're lucky if you just get a DA approval, right? That's right. <laughs> so you have to think of that and you have to think of the feasibility of the project. You have to financially be viable for the project and you have to implement all these ideas, the sustainable ideas into this. It's hard work. But just on that, so that's the architecture side. So if you keep it all in house, how do you ensure that you maintain that quality while also bringing in a whole heap of research from an external source, but then also managing things like your construction, the overarching development as well, and things like sales and marketing? Well, it's all about delegation. You have a good team that you can trust and you see that they follow the same dream and you delegate basically the tasks. Yeah. But I'm involved in everything. The good thing about having all this under one umbrella is you always think about different perspectives, how you market this, how you develop this, how you do construction, how you do architecture. And it's easier in terms of budget control and time control. But if you have different teams with 
different projects and all of that, obviously they don't have the same focus as you would have. I would imagine that keeping it under one umbrella also enables you to be quite nimble in the decisions that you make. Absolutely. You don't have to wait, even if, if it's just the time component for waiting for somebody to get back to you. It's not a different organization in another building. It's a person that sits on another desk right next to you. So I'd imagine that it's quick to make big decisions. That's exactly right. So construction starts at seven o'clock. So sometimes I go to the site and if there is any issues, I just sketch it on the site and it gets resolved. You don't have to talk to anyone. You don't have to wait for anyone. Then architecture starts from nine and then I come back to the office and I work with the architects and the, the marketing team and the sales team. So my day is a bit longer. It starts from seven to seven-ish. That's what you love. So. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's not work, it's passion. So Yeah, that's something that I wanted to get into. Yeah, do you actually see it as work or? Not really, not really. When I was working for someone before it was work, I was counting hours. I was like, when does it finish? Yeah, when do I get back to what you're yeah. <laughs> So just back on architecture, I guess architecture has one of the largest scopes for bringing sustainable concepts into yeah. what kinds of things are you looking at at the moment? In the current development that we are doing in Coronala, we are looking at zero energy. So we are integrating the building with solar panels and wind turbines. And also we have solar batteries to keep that electricity for the night. But it's also about the passive design. So it's not just you produce energy. It's all about how to save energy as well. So in the passive design that we are doing, for example, with the wall type that we're doing in Coronala, we are saving 30% of air conditioning just with the wall type that we're using. And then for the actual air conditioning, we are looking at the geothermal basically system, which is very efficient. And also double glazing windows, cold roof, different systems to have that passive design and have the, the proper cross ventilation into the building. So you use less air conditioning. And if you have to use air conditioning, it's supplied by solar panels and wind turbines. So the whole idea is we get to a point, we are not there yet, but we would like to get to a point that our building is not connected to any utilities. So the building is self-sufficient. It produces its own water and electricity, and we don't need gas even because everything is electric. That's right. You produce your own electricity, but you store it in batteries. Yeah. I've actually noticed this shift in the consumption of gas where because electricity is being generated by the property itself, yeah. there's actually no need for, for the gas. Absolutely. I have to tell you in San Francisco, they banned using natural gas in new developments. You cannot use natural gas anymore. So it has to be electric. Some people, they have a bit of hesitation using induction cooktops. But there are new technologies with Millet and Vizog that there is a, a great level of control over the heat and it can give you a very good experience using the electric. Yeah, which is unusual because yes. it was always one of those things that you just struggled to exactly. get right. Yeah. <laughs> this is the end of the first part of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Hamid's business journey so far. Coming up, we continue the conversation on sustainability and explore how Hamid integrates his various development streams to ensure his projects remain viable. See you soon.